This is the Education Gadfly Show. Why do they call it the Commonwealth, by the way, Mike? Is it because they hold the wealth in common? (laughs) (laughs) What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Ficciulli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Charlie Barone. Charlie, welcome back to the show. Hey, all. Good to see you or hear you or... Be with us in spirit. (laughs) For those of you that don't know, uh, Charlie is the vice president of K-12 policy at Democrats for Education Reform. Also joining us today, our regular co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Good to be here. Well, it is Wednesday morning when we are taping this, uh, almost Wednesday midday. In other words, the day after election day, but uh, a time when we don't know yet who won the presidential election and who's going to control the Senate. So keep that in mind, but that's not going to stop us. We're going to talk about what this election means for education reform anyway. So let's do that in Ed Reform Update. Okay, Charlie. Well, look, we could have big egg on our face, but as we tape this right now, Joe Biden, it looks like has a tiny, tiny lead in some of the most important swing states and may just eke this thing out. Of course, Donald Trump has already declared victory, which most commentators across the political spectrum have said was completely inappropriate and premature. But uh, the Senate certainly hangs in the balance. I think if anything, it's it's looking unlikely that uh, Democrats are going to flip the Senate, though that could still happen. Right. So here we are. Question is, let's let's just assume for the sake of the podcast that Biden does pull this out. What does this mean for education reform? He certainly did not run on a strong education reform platform. No, he didn't. And, you know, I think a lot's going to depend on what happens in the Senate in terms of what he's able to do. So if it stays the way it looks now and Republicans maintain control of the Senate, he's going to have to come in and work with Republicans. And the first order of business is very likely to be a COVID-4 bill that they'll very much want to do. They're not going to get it done in this lame duck session, I don't believe, because the results are going to be so up in the air and they want to see how it sorts out. So I think the big trouble there is going to be around money. That was the Mm -hmm. big trouble before the election with, you know, budget hawks in the Senate, particularly not wanting to spend another few trillion dollars. So I think that's going to be the first order of business that they have to work out. Right. So that's really important to say and interesting, Charlie, is that this expectation that maybe uh, schools uh, as well as state and local governments were about to get a lot of federal relief, uh, at the very least, that's that's going to be delayed probably another couple of months. Uh, and if it happens, maybe smaller than than folks had expected uh, just a few days ago when it looked like, you know, a lot of pundits were predicting that the Democrats would control the Senate. You know, there's been a lot of talk about charter schools. Uh, Joe Biden has not made charter-friendly statements for the most part, though, you know, officially he's not opposed to charter schools, though he does oppose for-profit charter schools. But he's talked about things like local school districts getting to have a say over whether new charters are allowed within their geographies. What do you think? Again, if, if we end up having kind of a split of control in government, my read would be that maybe that's probably good for the federal charter schools program. The Senate Republicans and moderate Democrats will protect it. And Joe Biden's not going to spend much political capital going after that. Is Is that seem right to you as well? That seems right to me. I mean, how much political capital he'll expend, I think, depends on a couple of things. He, you know, he's never been someone who's big into doing education policy. So, you know, in all his time in the Senate, he doesn't have much in terms of a track record. So the question is, does that translate into him not being too interested in it? And then so he doesn't pursue anything 
that would cost a lot, a lot of political capital? Or does he have someone as his secretary who's he's just willing to let loose mm-hmm. um, and do what they want because he's not that into it? I think they could go either way mm-hmm. there. But I think you're right with Biden in the White House as a Democratic House, it might embolden the House who's going to have to take up the spending measure first to go a little further in cutting CSP than they have the last couple of years where they've cut it 10% each year. Uh, and then last year, the Senate came in and it, we wound up with level funding. I think something like that could happen again. And that's the role that the Senate has played in uh, evening out <clears throat> what is uh, soft support in the House for the C- uh, charter schools program. Biden has been clear that he's definitely a union guy. I mean, he talks yeah. about that all the time and uh, and he's very tight with the teachers union. So, I mean, what what are they going to expect him to do on their behalf? Is it going to be mostly when it just just show us the money? I mean, it's good that that's going to be their main focus is get relief through these big bills, do you think? Yeah, I mean, they got a couple of candidates in the primary, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, to go all the way and say they would just basically defund the charter school program. Biden didn't say that. I'm not sure how Biden, if they've thought it through at all, how they would translate some of what they've called for into policy. You know, there isn't a provision in federal law that invites districts to weigh in on charter expansion. So how would he do that? Yeah. Um, yeah. But even bigger than that, Charlie, I mean, so how does Joe Biden, though, show his appreciation unions? Let's say it's not through the charter schools program. Is it just through, again, the relief bills? Is it through pushing for big Title I increases? Is it just on money? Or do you think he's going to feel pressured to do things on testing accountability that they might like or other issues out there? Yeah, no, I don't think they're going to settle for some small things or even things that they like. I think they're going to, the unions will try to push him as far as he could go. And assessments and accountability is one place they could do that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, DeVos has told states that she is not inclined to issue waivers for testing next spring the way that she did this past spring. I think on that issue alone, if Biden gets in, there'll be a lot of pressure on him mm-hmm. to waive uh, testing requirements for the spring. So that may be one thing that he could give to them. Yeah. The variable there is, is he willing to do that in the face of a lot of opposition from civil rights groups, which I think would happen if they actually tried to go ahead with canceling spring assessments. Right. What's on your mind, David? Uh, I think you guys have gotten it about right. And I think as you were talking, I, I think assessments is that's the biggest risk by far, because I think there's not a lot of grassroots support with the American public or it's, it's extremely thin. Let me put it that way. It's broad, but it's thin for assessments. And it's probably almost non-existent right now. I honestly, personally do not see any threat to the charter movement here whatsoever. Um, I think some of these policies are articulated precisely because there's no way they can be actually implemented. So they are rhetorical gestures. And um, I don't know if the teachers union realizes that they're, they're not complete idiots. So maybe they do. <laughs> but part of why I um, find it easy to support folks like Joe Biden when they do this sort of thing is because it's, it's pretty clear that it's not actually going to, t- to happen, not actually something you can put into place through federal law. Yeah. So 
don't mm. think that's going anywhere, but I think accountability could be in trouble. And to what Charlie's point, that it, the, the pick of education secretary becomes very important here, most likely, especially if Biden's not going to pay a whole lot of attention to this issue uh, himself. Of course, if the Senate remains in Republican hands, uh, that boxes him in somewhat, right? I don't think we're going to see uh, NEA's uh, Lily Eskelson Garcia as secretary of education if they need 50 Republican votes uh, for a confirmation, right? So that'll be interesting. Hey, Charlie, one last question I've got, which to me is, is really big. We've been talking about federal policy, of course, but I think the big issue is out there in the states and local districts. You know, your folks have been getting hammered for the last four years when they support charter schools or testing or any of the reform agenda, uh, tying them to, you know, Trump and DeVos, especially on charters and choice. If Trump is gone uh, as president, does that mean that it's safe for Democrats to be in favor of education reform again? (laughs) You could see this pendulum swing back the other way. I haven't seen the linking of reformers to Trump and DeVos do much damage on the federal policy front. You know, we lobby as an organization every year in coalition for increased funding for CSP. We haven't had people really peel off from, you know, signing letters and writing to appropriators. You know, I guess my hope is it would open us up to be daring in other ways that we're not thinking through fully yet. You know, one thing would be to me, you know, is there a federal policy response to pandemic pods that you could, you know, put through and put some money into where the funding would either go through a school district or through a nonprofit community-based organization? That would be reform and wouldn't fall on the column of things that the third rail issues, but it could be something that you could get bipartisan support for. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the unions would be, you know, full-throated in favor of, but I think we'd be hard to argue against. So I think the more that we can think of, yeah. you know, policies that fit the present moment where there are new coalitions might bear some fruit, at least. And, and, but, but, and at the state level, I mean, it's fair to say though, there's certainly been, remember the California governor's race, for example. Yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, plenty of other examples where uh, Democratic candidates, especially running in Democratic primaries, you know, they've got really hammered if they supported charter schools uh, because progressives said, oh, see, you're you're tied with DeVos and Trump. So I guess that that's the bigger question. If the boogeyman yeah. of, of Trump and DeVos are gone at the local level, forget federal policy. I know it's your first love, Charlie, federal policy, but forget yeah. it for now. Out there in the real world in the States, are, are we going to see people, uh, you know, de- Democrats being willing to step up again? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think everybody, Democrat and Republican, the last few years has very much been playing it safe. I think people had a bunch of fights in the years leading up to, you know, 2015, 2016. And so everybody seems to be keeping their powder dry. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm into state and local policy. I keep thinking about ways we might break through to a time where people are just willing to say, well, we need to do some things differently, which is yeah. always controversial enough. And right now I'm not seeing that out in the states and localities from either party. Yeah, fair enough. All right. Well, we will leave it there. Charlie Barone, again, Vice President for K-12 Policy at Democrats for Education reform. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. So uh, again, as we said earlier, we're, we're recording this the day after the election. I, I assume you had a nice relaxing evening <laughs> last night. Just kept checking my phone and then finally it's like, nope, we're not going to know tonight. Go to bed. 
Uh, and look, your state of Virginia, or is it the Commonwealth it's of Virginia? The Commonwealth of Virginia. The Commonwealth of Virginia was was kind of in the spotlight there for a while. I know. Uh, called it pretty early, but anyhow, I guess that's how things go in Virginia. Yeah, today. No, no, but see, well, I was watching CNN, and for a long time, they, uh, you know, just the way the vote came in, Fairfax County, for some reason, uh, had some long delays. So I heard. Trump was way up in Virginia. Some miscounting, apparently. I, I don't think that's the last we're going to hear of potential miscounts, but uh, who knows? Yeah. What do they call it the Commonwealth, by the way, Mike? Is it because they hold the wealth in common? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know this. It seems like quite a few of the original colonies are the one, you know, were, were Commonwealths, <laughs> right? Pennsylvania, I think, Massachusetts, I believe. Uh-huh. All right, we should look into that. Hey, David, you're you're our civics and history <laughs> expert. Right. Free time. All right. Isn't that something that it's probably in their state standards, I bet. All right, Amber, what do you have for us? Uh, We have a new study by Scott Emberman and Catherine Strunk, who's an EAPS, and a small team of other folks. I mean, this is kind of a a joint effort here. They're examining whether students with disabilities have access to high-quality teachers. So we've all sort of seen the literature that's pretty chock full about low-income students having less less access to high-quality teachers, but we know very little about what that access looks like for students with disabilities. So it's kind of a kind of an important contribution here. They study the question in Los Angeles, the second largest district in the country, about 570,000 K-12 students. They're looking at student and teacher level match data from 2014-15 through 2017-18 for all grade K through 8 students attending regular schools. And they're not looking at special education centers or the like. They're focusing on students with disabilities who are taught in general education classrooms, since the majority of these students are in general education classrooms for most of their school days. And of course, I'm kind of curious, you know, how does this work? And we're told in the paper that these student-teacher pairings for elementary and middle schools is, quote, fairly randomized, according to the officials there. But then when you kind of dig in some more, we're also told the decision of whether a child should be included in general education is made on a case-by-case basis by a team of school personnel based on their needs, and I would assume the IEP. And then among those kids who are placed in general ed classrooms, those procedures then into the specific teacher's classrooms are also decided by school personnel. So it's kind of gray, right, how exactly all this classroom assignment works. But Uh, One thing I did look for and didn't see, because back when I was teaching, like a lot of times you'd have to have a teacher in the classroom with a special certification, you know, in special education. But we don't know, don't have that information about what this experience looks like for kids in the general education classroom. All right. Anyhow, all that behind us. They focus on four aspects of teacher quality, value added measure, teacher ratings on observations, teacher as initial hiring scores. Apparently they've got something where they score the teachers in the hiring process, and new teacher status. So whether they're in their first two years, with the idea being that novice teachers are generally lower quality than more experienced teachers, they're essentially estimating the teacher quality gap, TQG, whereby they look at whether students with various disabilities, because they also look at disability type, specific learning disability, autism, and speech language impairment, whether they're exposed to teachers across these different quality measures I just told you about, and whether that exposure for their non-disabled peers is statistically different from the disabled peers, all right? And then they look at whether these gaps might differ by school poverty and disability type. Findings. Students with disabilities are significantly more likely to have teachers with lower math value added than their non-disabled peers, 
On average, students with disabilities in general education classrooms have math teachers with 0.024 standard deviation lower VAM, and then they have 0.28 lower teacher evaluation scores than their non-disabled peers. There are no significant differences by the novice status or in those hiring scores I just told you about. In ELA, no difference in VAM, but students with disabilities tend to be assigned to teachers with lower evaluation scores, and they're more likely to be assigned to novices. They find that most of this variation, especially in math, is due to within school differences. They look next at how these gaps vary by school poverty level. They find some differences, such as an increased likelihood of having a novice teacher in schools with 95 to 100% students who are uh, on free and reduced lunch, so those you know, uber poor schools, they do see some differences there, but they conclude that in general, the gaps do not vary by school poverty level. Finally, they look at differences by disability type, um, and that was pretty mixed. They find that schools and the schools with both the most poverty and the least poverty, students with specific learning disability, SLD, have teachers with lower math VAM compared to non-disabled peers. So there's a little pattern around this lower math VAM. Uh, No differences in hiring scores, no differences in novice status by disability type. Uh, And then they look at the, you know, they they look into the um, kids with autism and they find very little evidence for teacher quality gaps with kids who have autism. And then they look at the speech language impairment and they find that actually those kids seem to be faring a little bit better. So if you're in the middle and the highest poverty schools with a speech language impairment, they actually have teachers with higher VAM scores and higher evaluation scores. And they're also less likely to have novice teachers. So that's a lot. But in the end, the math VAM difference seemed to be the big kind of gap finding. So I think that merits attentions. But then they kind of said, you know, there were a few differences on these other measures of quality we looked at. So perhaps, you know, principals really aren't actively sorting students with disabilities into classrooms that are taught by teachers that have some of these characteristics that we might not like. And maybe they're, you know, looking at unobservable things like whether the teacher has a strong classroom management skills or whether she can engage these kids better and so on and so forth. Wow. Okay. And again, just to clarify, we we don't think that the fact that some teachers maybe have more of these kids in their classrooms is what's causing the lower VAM or lower evaluation scores. We think that they dealt with that okay. I don't know. I did not see a discussion of how many, the quote, dosage of, of kids in the classroom with disabilities. I mean, I, I remember some studies, I think, on, on the evaluation front that teachers that had just uh, lower achieving kids or maybe discipline issue kids or, you know, just more challenging classrooms got lower evaluation scores, right? And it may be that you go in to evaluate a teacher and a teacher that just got dealing with more stuff doesn't look as good as, as they would have if they had a classroom full of sort of e- easier to teach kids, so to speak. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's going to be some relationship between kids with disabilities and some of these behavioral issues and needing attention and this. And that. I mean, it just all seems like a, it yeah. would all be wound up together. Yeah. I, the first order concern is, right, do essentially is there bias in the measure of teacher quality, right? All four of them? <laughs> What's that? Right. All four of them? Right. Well, it, yeah. So it's possible. It's obviously very hard to account for something like disability, but let's assume there's not. I think there's still reason to believe that teachers would gravitate away from these classrooms, you know, over time. So, you know, maybe you're assigned to that classroom. Yeah, and that's why I said at the beginning, we don't know. This is all gray, right, about how these assignments work. 
Okay. Was that not a finding of the study? Like they, they didn't look into that? That was my finding. No. Oh, you're fine. Okay. <laughs> All right. I mean, it's certainly, it's intuitive. We certainly hear that first year teachers get really tough assignments. In general, fourth year teachers are better than first year teachers. So I'd be interested to know, right, how much of this gap is just experience. I mean, they looked at the novice status, though, you guys, and they they, oh. they, they didn't find much difference in the novice status. Okay. All right. I missed that. Well, look, I buy this notion that, you know, there could be teachers out there who are seen to be, you know, great with kids with disabilities. And maybe those teachers are not the same teachers that are great at teaching math. I mean, the extent that most, if we're talking about elementary school teachers, that, that you know, reading is what they are really are trained on more than anything else and focused on, maybe particularly with kids with disabilities, right? So, you know, these might be very strong teachers when it comes to helping kids with disabilities yeah. learn to read, mm-hmm. but math is not their thing, you know? And, and so there you go. Yeah, that, I think that's right. Mike. Yeah. that's the other thing I was going to say is it could have something to do with the perceived match. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to use the word hazard pay, right? But maybe I should. You know, it, it's certainly there have been proposals to pay teachers more who work in high poverty schools, right, in, in places like D.C. Um, and I think that's at least worth considering when you're thinking about this policy, too. I mean, I, I guess I'm scratching my head because is it no longer the case where I guess it depends on the IEP, right? Whether you have to have a teacher with a special education certification or a, some experience I mean, mm-hmm. back in the, the back in the day. You know, I mean, you, you still get certification in, in special needs and you have to have that to teach special needs kids. So I don't know. But not, not in the general classroom. But, but your IEP can can call for that. I guess that's no. what was unclear in my mind. You know, sometimes you would have to have a second teacher in that room and the kids aren't supposed to know that the, the second teacher is in there for them. <laughs> you know, right. Like they don't know. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, good. Well, hey, <laughs> it, it's leaving us puzzled a little bit. You know, not unlike this week's election results. <laughs> and we, what a time. We try to make sense of the patterns that we see, right? I'm just trying to wrap it all yeah, up. Yeah, right? hey, it, 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 it works. All right. Well, hey, good stuff. Important. Uh, thorny. But, you know, we don't have nearly enough uh, research out there on uh, special education. Uh, yeah. That's right. And, and uh, how it intersects with these other issues. So very cool stuff. Great job, researchers. Yeah. All right. Well, that is all the time we have for this week's Gadfly show. Hey, listeners, if you like what you've been hearing, please be sure to click subscribe on your respective podcast platform. And if you're using Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and a review. It would be great to know what you think and what you have to say. And it will also help other listeners find this great podcast. Thanks for your help on that. All right. Well, until next week, I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.